Would you please welcome Reverend Dr. Tom Gibbs. Thank you, Bob. Greetings to, uh, to you here at First Presbyterian. So excited to be with you, and um, it's been such a, um, a reunion of relationships. I've been both back at my home church, Redeemer, as we celebrated our 20th anniversary, um, as, as well as here at First Pres and remembering uh, fondly my uh, days at the beginning of Redeemer. Mitchell and I became friends, um, and I had the opportunity to spend time with him in those early days and became friends with many of you. And some of you don't know this, but the final five years, my family was here in San Antonio. We were living next door to the Zabendan family. And so Kip and Lewis became uh, friends of ours there, uh, right there on the street, Oakhurst. And um, it's a joy to be back with their family. And, and so we're just giving thanks uh, for the opportunity to be in uh, what has now become our home city. And my wife laments that she's not able to be with us, but she also sends her greetings as well. Our passage this morning comes from John's Gospel, chapter 14. Doubtless, it will be familiar to you, uh, but I want us to look at this passage not only for the blessing it brings, but also for the mission it calls us to engage. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. John chapter 14, 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Will you join me as we pray for God's blessing upon his word? Heavenly Father, your word is living and active. It cuts to the marrow, dividing and sorting our hearts. We pray that you would do that work this morning, that you would sort us and sanctify us, turning us from the trivial and that which cannot save and direct our hearts unto the mercies, the fount of mercy that is born solely in Jesus, our Savior. Holy Spirit, would you come and anoint us, making the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable and, Lord, joyful and alive in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our refuge, we pray in your name. Amen. For years, I had the privilege of serving as an assessor with our denomination's church planting assessment center at Mission to North America. And during the assessment process, planter candidates had to give a brief devotional and evangelistic message some example of what they might do in a church planting context. And to be honest with you, most of those messages that, that I heard were not very good. <laughs> it was rare to find a, a good evangelistic homily delivered. There was one, though, that stuck with me, and it was given by a Vietnamese-American church planter candidate. And he started that message with the story of how he met 
who was to be his future wife. This beautiful Southern belle from the state of Georgia, they both grew up in Atlanta, and they were on their first date. And She was sharing about how she grew up like a typical American teenager. She had her own room. She had a television in her room. She had a telephone in her room, and it just blew this young man's mind. He just couldn't imagine such a privilege because like is typical for immigrant families growing up in this country, he had many siblings and they lived in tight quarters. His room was the place where he slept at night with his brothers and sisters. But in the daytime, they rolled up their bedding material and that room doubled as their common room during the day. And his, he experienced that and watched his fellow teenagers. He realized that all I ever wanted was to have my own room. Have a room. And you can imagine his amazement after he became a Christian and began to walk with the Lord. And he came across this passage from John chapter 14, where here we see the God of the universe, the God of all creation, who is declaring to this sinful and broken world that he is bringing us rooms. Bringing us rooms in which to dwell. And you can... You can imagine, you can resonate. He said, my mind was blown yet again in a deeper and more significant way. I think it was the late Archbishop William Temple, and I shared this with the group that gathered yesterday. He said this, that the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. As far as I can tell, and, and though it's a little counterintuitive and even somewhat disturbing, I, I think um, Dr. Temple's insight is biblically on target. And in fact, I think it captures the wisdom of what Jesus is saying here, that he has come not for himself, that the Lord of heaven has left the glory of his abode and abandoned it that he might bring to us those who are not yet with him, to him. Jesus' mission is one of making room for his people. Jesus came to make room for us. And I don't know what, what it is. We Maybe it's because we just want to race ahead to verse 6 and the sublimity of that, that, that verse and its significance, but we don't talk enough about this grand metaphor of Jesus making room for his people and the beauty of how it portrays the salvation that we are given in and through him and by his grace. And I want us to think about this metaphor. But not only do I want us to think about this metaphor as it blesses us and encourages us, I want us to realize that this metaphor, that this making room image, also enlists us. Not only are we those who have been given the grace of Jesus' love, the room that he's making for us, but by virtue of that grace, he has enlisted us to serve him in that making room mission. In fact, there are three implications that I want us to consider this morning of that making room mission. First, the hospitality that we offer. Secondly, the relationships that, that we form. And thirdly, the passageway that we uphold. Hospitality, relationships, and passageway. 
First, let's think about the hospitality that we offer. At its most basic level, the imagery of making room is about hospitality. A safe, protected room is a hospitable act. It's a hospitable gift. And as Bob just prayed a moment ago, we see the homeless around us in our city, on your steps, on our steps at Redeemer Church. We hear the stories of immigrants crossing our border, some destitute and diseased in the scrub of South Texas, that many losing their, their life. They're literally homeless, helpless, and destitute in this world. And yet Jesus here speaks about a destitution, a homelessness that accrues to our lives, even if we have every material blessing, even if we have all of the material and physical blessings of this world, we have every luxury. The Bible speaks of a spiritual destitution that accrues to every person without our God and his saving mercy. Paul writes to the Ephesians that, that we are without Christ strangers to the promises of the covenant, having no hope and without God in the world. And without Christ, we have no home. Even if we have everything in this world. And it's that, to that destitution, it's to that, that, that lack of safety that Jesus here speaks, let not your hearts be troubled in my Father's house, are many rooms. The gospel's invitation is one that offers rest to the sin-weary traveler in this world. Jesus is the hospitable one making a place for, for us and for those who have lost their way. At its most basic level, Jesus' mission is a beautiful expression of Latino hospitality, Mikasa Sukasa. My house is your house. Come to my house. Come and find refuge. Come and find safety. I love what the late Henri Nouwen says about the hospitable mission of Jesus Christ. He says that hospitality is primarily the means of creating a free space where the stranger becomes a friend instead of an enemy. It's about the creation of a space where, the, where, where someone becomes a friend instead of an enemy. And I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. And I'm not even sure if this is true for all Christians, but, but it's certainly true for Presbyterians. We like our space. We like to protect our space. And we can tend to be pretty miserly about our space. It reminds me of that, that joke about St. Peter as he was welcoming a, a, new, a new class of saints bought by God's grace into heaven and they were being shown around seeing the various members of the glorious heaven re realizing, oh, oh, there's some Methodists and some Episcopalians and Baptists and Catholics and Bible church dispensationalists. All of these beautiful saints were filled with the, 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 the halls of heaven. They came across this door. It was shut, and on it had a sign, the Presbyterians. Peter said, be quiet. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> we, 
we miss it, don't we? We miss how abundant and vast is the, 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 the glory of, of heaven, that the members of the kingdom, is, as we're told in the Abrahamic promise, it will number the stars of the sky, the sands of the shore. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Many rooms. And then he goes on to say, if I go and prepare a place for you. These, there are many rooms. They are protected for us as people. There are places for you and for me. As I go back to that church planner, he couldn't imagine a place where he had his own personal space. And again, this isn't about a personal space protected for us where we get to do whatever we want. No, that's, that's sin. No, no, he's talking about a place of refuge and protection that, that is guarded for us. Jesus is speaking about that place, protected refuge from the brokenness of this world. Peter speaks about it in his first letter that he describes our eternal rest as, as unfading as undefiled, as imperishable, and kept in heaven for you. And we don't have to get hung up on the geography of heaven. But we understand that in the final day, God will make all things new, a glorious new heavens and a new earth. That Jesus is speaking about the glories that are coming to us as his people. But but the hospitality that we are given in and through Jesus Christ is protected for us, kept in heaven for us. But but as we think about that image of abundant rooms and protected rooms, the blessing of that hospitality offered to us, we tend to forget that that blessing is also one that we're to offer. We hear that blessing, we claim that promise, but do we also realize it calls us to extend that blessing to those around us? What does it mean for us to participate in Jesus' mission of hospitality? Well, at the very least, it means that we welcome the stranger as they come into the doors of this congregation we create a space for them. I was so encouraged to hear that uh, First Prez offers a gift to newcomers, which is a beautiful expression of hospitality. We're glad that you're here. And it means so many other things like that, comprehensible worship guides and friendly teams and warm conversation, but it also extends beyond the walls of this church. As we think about the hospitality that we extend to the broken in this world, it makes me think of uh, the story of Theo van Gogh, who back in 2004 was killed by a Muslim radical in the Netherlands. And during that time, the entire country erupted in domestic terrorism. As people battled across the country and Muslims huddled in their homes and people were scared of the violence, and it was at this point that a traditional and, and very conservative a Dutch Protestant minister, he knocked on the door of the neighborhood mosque in which he lived, a Muslim community, and he went to that mosque where the, those inside had huddled for protection. Yet they came to the door, opened the door, and they couldn't imagine who was in front of them. And he told them, I'm going to stand guard 
I'm going to stand guard here at your door until the violence stops. And in the succeeding weeks, many other ministers stood guard at those Muslim mosques. And that hospitality extended for more than three months. In no way agreeing with the tenets of Islam and yet demonstrating that there is a safe space, that the gospel is about a hospitality that bears witness to the gospel. When I think about the mission of, of the Lord's people, the mission of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, part of what we're called to do is to build bridges of hospitality that declare the safety that is offered in and through Jesus Christ. Our mission is to be a hospitable one. To, to be a hospital for, for the sinful and broken, the sin-weary travelers in this world. We really aren't walking with Jesus unless we're sharing with him in that making room mission. The hospita hospitality that we offer, but, but it goes on, right? The relationships that we form, that the eternal rest that Jesus offers is not just about hospitality, what I have is yours, but my home. Jesus is saying to us, what I am is yours. Who I am is yours. Where I am is yours. Go on in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and he says, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And again, we don't have to get hung up on the geography of heaven here. The blessing of our everlasting rest is not so much about the place of that glory as it is about the, the reconciliation of these relationships. And I'm not just speaking about the reconciliation of relationships between, between us and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly, the reconciliation of our relationship with our heavenly Father. Jesus here is saying that, that by virtue of his saving mission, we are brought into that saving relationship with God, our heavenly Father. We can, with Jesus, cry out, Abba, Father. But where I am, you may be also who I am. You may also have that privilege. It's profound. It's glorious. There is no higher privilege that, that we're brought into that most intimate of communion. But, but my question that this morning as we think about this passage is, is, is not so much the blessing of that communion the treasure of that relationship as much as it is to ask you this question, do you want others to share in that communion? Do you want others to have that blessed experience of relationship? Do you, do you want to share that? Do you want others to experience that relationship? And we know from the story of Jonah that sometimes the people of God can be wearied by the grace of our covenant God. In fact, we can become proud and territorial about the grace that we have received. This is mine. It's not yours. Such was Jonah. 
that Jonah wanted to run away from God's grace being extended to the people of Nineveh, which, by the way, is in modern-day Mosul and Iraq. He was frustrated that God would show grace to his hated enemies. This is what he says there, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life. It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah was so territorial about the grace that he had received, he didn't want anybody else to receive it. In fact, he would rather have died than others receive it. Jonah battled a a theology of scarcity. There was a limit to the grace of God, and he he was in danger of losing what was his. And, And I think sometimes we have the same fear. That somehow that there's not enough of God to go around, that there's not enough of his grace to be shared, that there's not enough, and I need to protect mine. And we're driven by fear. We tribe up. And we see the other as our enemy. And we push them out. And so rather than forming relationships that we tear them down and we tear the bridges down and we burn them down. And we, we forget the vast scope of the mercy of our God and how Jesus is saying there's always room for more relationships. There's always more bridges to be built. There's always more opportunities for us to see the gospel move out. That Redeemer, as we started with some six families in our home, I began with a question often asked this way, are you open to having a new best friend? You see, the gospel is always breaking our heart that it might open out to the people around us. It's a narrow view of God's grace that wants to gather to ourselves what is protected, what is easy, what is comfortable. I've got mine, don't bother me. The Jesus way is always opening out, pulling up another chair to the table, offering another person's to the banquet. The the hospitality that we offer, the relationships that we form, and finally, as we think about the passageway that we uphold, we need to go back to Jonah. As we think about Jonah, he, he said, I would rather die Right, and that the Gentiles, the Ninevites, would receive mercy. Of course, Jesus did die, that we, the Ninevites, might receive mercy. It was his greatest privilege and joy that he might set aside his glory, that he might bring about the reconciliation of the Gentiles. And it was a unique passageway, right? On account of that death, we are given life. And that's what he speaks about here to, uh, to Thomas and the disciples. That they're in the upper room and they don't fully understand all that Jesus has been declaring to them. They still don't get it. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you and you know where I'm going. And Tom, No, I, we don't know where you're going. We don't understand. How can we know the way? 
And again, Jesus declares, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a particular path. It's a particular passageway. The disciples had not put it all together. Maybe you haven't put it all together, but, but here Jesus is saying with this constellation of, of words, way, truth, and life, he's giving us a vision of that unique pathway through which we are brought to life in Christ, that we are brought back from the dead. He, he is the way. His death is the way. Because he's dying the death that we deserve. He is the truth, for in Christ all righteousness has been fulfilled. He is the exact imprint of the glory of our God. He has fulfilled all righteousness, and he is the life, because by virtue of that death, a death that he did not deserve, but we did, he has brought for us and to us life everlasting. If you've yet to hear that story, If you've yet to hear the good news, friends, that is the good news that offers everlasting life to you today. Come to Jesus and find rest. But many of us already know that story. We've entered into that that everlasting hope. We know the the, the gift of our salvation. And the question I I want us to ask this, this morning is, is, do we want others to know that story? Are we burdened with that story? That makes me, me think of Ernest Gordon, who was the longtime dean of chapel in the 1950s at Princeton University. But prior to him serving at Princeton University, he was a Scottish soldier in the Pacific Theater of World War II and also became a prisoner of war and was part of those terrible details um, that, that uh, suffered enormously in, in, in that conflict. And he tells the story in one of his memoirs of how a commanding Japanese officer had, had, had uh, treated them brutally and they were on some work detail and a shovel went missing from their, their work detail group. And the Japanese commanding officer gathered them up and said, I'm going to start shooting soldiers unless you produce the missing shovel. And the soldiers didn't know where the shovel was. They didn't know there was a missing shovel. And so he pulled one of the soldiers aside. And just as he was about to um, pull the trigger on his revolver, another soldier stepped forward and said, it was me. I I took the shovel. And the commanding officer, he put his revolver way into his holster. He took up another shovel, and then he proceeded to beat that man to death. Afterwards, they marched back to camp. They counted up the shovels and discovered there were no missing shovels. Ernest Gordon at that moment knew that Jesus... That man had given his life for him, and that became the doorway into his story of faith. This is the story of the gospel, how in an even deeper and more significant way, more impactful way, how how Christ had given his life for his life. 
And so unpacked was the story, the passageway, the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus here speaks about in John 14, verse 6. Without his sacrifice, we are saved. We aren't saved. But, but again, you know that. We're a church that proclaims the truths of the Reformation, who delights in the glories of grace as revealed to us in the, in the Bible. We know this. The question I want us to ask this morning is how zealous are we about sharing that mission with the people around us? How much is it worth it to you? How much are you willing to have your life inconvenienced to tell that story? How much does it matter? Of course, we don't inconvenience our lives. We don't do work for the kingdom of God in order to merit his favor or gain something from him. How can we gain more than what we've already been given? There's nothing to be gained. We already have all that we need and more. Our lives are lived out of gratitude for the gift of grace. But because our hearts have been so touched and transformed, how can we not want others to share in the glories of the gospel? How can we not want others to experience the sweetness of God's grace that we ourselves have experienced? How can we not say to others, as we enjoy the blessedness of the room Jesus made for us, hey, come and share this room. Come to this room. Come and enjoy the glories of the gospel. Friends, there's nothing better than inconveniencing our lives that others might know the joys of the gospel. I'm a Crosby, Stills, and Nash fan. I'm guessing some of you are. It's a little older now. My favorite song is the Southern Cross. And my favorite line in that song about lost love happens in the last stanza. And it it goes like this. We never failed to fail. It was the easiest thing to do. And we never failed to fail. It was the easiest thing to do. Failing at our mission, no matter what it is, is always the easiest thing to do, isn't it? Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers. Friends, coworkers, employees, bosses, brothers, sisters, failing at our mission is always the easiest thing to do because all we have to do to fail is, well, do nothing. Be indifferent. Sometimes even when we're trying hard, even when we're trying to be successful, and this is especially true in the context of the church and our zeal to be faithful, whether it's theology or worship or, or Maybe it's, it's um, our morality. We, we, we end up building barriers to the very ones that we're called to seek. It makes me think of the story of David Brooks, who, who has written about his own journey to the faith and his most recent work, The Second Mountain. And he talks about his journey towards God. And he, he says that I found out pretty quickly along the way that religious people were prone to do to two different strategies. Some built ramps that made the journey easier. But others built walls that made the journey harder. And my charge this morning is that First Presbyterian Church, and I've charged 
uh, the church down the street, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, in the same way, that we would be churches that build ramps and bridges and not walls and put up obstacles that we might welcome the very ones Jesus has come to save, recognizing that our churches are called to be places of hospitality, that they're called to be places of thick, rich relationships shaped by grace. And friends, they are called to be the place where we uphold the passageway of the gospel, that we clearly proclaim the way of salvation, which is in and through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is Jesus making room mission. And as his disciples, we're called to join him in that mission. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace, that that which is given to us in Christ. We pray this morning that we would remember again that you've not only called us to yourself, you've called us to serve with you in making the gospel known. Help us to do that work. And I thank you for my friends here at First Presbyterian. Bless them and guide them into all truth. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.